a complex world brimming with new ambitions, the best leaders create the best workplaces. This is the Oil & Gas Digital Doers podcast, where you can hear real stories about digital capabilities and a culture of empowerment with your host, Joanne Meyer. So welcome to the Oil & Gas Global Network's Digital Doers podcast. And the Oil & Gas Global Network is the world's largest network of oil and gas podcasts. There's about 15, but today it's the Digital Doers podcast that you've joined. And we're here with Colin Davies, and I'm uh, very excited to speak with someone that I think is different than any other guest that we've had so far um, in many respects. So I'm really looking forward to hearing Colin talk about the industry and also a little bit about maybe how the industry is seen from the outside. But before we do that, I do want to say, first of all, thank you to all of you who hit all the right buttons on your keyboard so you could join us. Very happy to have you here with us today. And then I also want to take a couple of minutes and say thank you to our sponsor, HPE. If it wasn't for HPE, we wouldn't be able to have these meaningful conversations. If you get a chance, go to hpe.com and take a look in particular at their new Green Lake platform. And their tagline is all about bringing the cloud to you wherever your data and apps reside. The whole point is to try to give you a very user-friendly and uh, easy experience. Um, you know, whether you're at the edges, you're at a co-location for your data center, just wherever you are, go take a look and check out their new GreenLake platform. So with that, I think we'll get started and, uh, and meet Colin Davies. You know, most of the time here on the Digital Doers podcast, we are talking with folks in operations or engineering or perhaps IT. And so it's a real treat today to talk to someone that is, uh, hasn't, has spent most of his career doing something a little different than just helping fix folks meet their objectives, but he actually has been very involved, I think, for most of his career in helping set those objectives, helping companies set them and perhaps develop the strategies behind those objectives. And so, um, and not only that, but as I look uh, at uh, Colin's uh, background and talk with him, I think he also perhaps has a more global perspective than we sometimes get. So uh, welcome to Colin Davies, and uh, tell us a little bit about how you got started in the industry. Well, thank you, Joanne, and thank you for the inv invitation to be on the podcast today. Um, yeah, so um, I've bounced around the industry over the years quite a bit. Uh, as you can tell from the accent, I'm, I'm probably <laughs> spent you know, half my time in Europe, half my time in the, in the U.S., um, Currently, I'm working right at the center of the energy transition, trying to help a number of uh, uh, oil and gas and, and oilfield services companies 
um, look for business opportunity across the uh, across the energy transition space, and also work with a number of startups and, and ventures looking to bring technology into the into the industry. Again, associated usually with the with the, with the transition space. But my last corporate role, I was I was working with BP in Houston um, as as part of their digital and technology program, really responsible for trying to prioritize all of the digital and technology investment across um, all of EMP, refining, um, midstream, petrochemicals when they when they had it before they sold it. Um, and I also had the back office as well, so all the, all the finance systems and supply chain systems as, as well, and, and looking after that. So it was, it was kind of like an investment role, but right at the heart of technology and digital transformation. So it was my, my last corporate role in the industry. Um, prior to that, I was actually in New York um, working on the investment side. So I was a, a senior sell-side analyst um, uh, covering... Um, uh, oil field services, so you know Schlumberger, Halliburton, Baker, um, and a number of other companies uh, through the the tough times of the industry from from 2016 onwards. Um, and it was good to get a, the the investors' mindset around the industry and how they look at um, company performance, company uh, targets, and also you know the technology side of of of, of leveraging and, and creating value from technology. And prior to that investment side, I, I spent uh, nearly a decade as head of corporate strategy at, at Hess Corporation, again in New York. Um, and going way, way back, I was a management consultant in the industry, uh, really working all over the world, a um, little time with Schlumberger and uh, various other consultants as well. So that's, that's me going, working backwards from t- today backwards. So that's really interesting. Um, so... I didn't realize you were as heavily on uh, these days focusing on the energy transition. Not that that's a particular surprise, but uh, as we all should be doing, I think we're certainly missing uh, the all of the indicators and missing the opportunities if that's that's not where we're spending a great deal of time. So that that's interesting. So say before I do want to talk a great deal about this this time and how you've looked at investments. But before we go there, I I am curious a little bit about, um, at BP, you know, just something you said was, uh, helping them kind of prioritize, uh, their digital, um, initiatives. Can you say just a little bit about what was some of the criteria for prioritizing that, you know, not, don't have to go into great depth, but I'm just curious if it's what we all think it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's a great question, and I think um, you know, as is has been publicly declared by BP, you know, BP made a very bold move to 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 say that digital investment um, would be a key value driver for uh, both their newly stated strategy to and, and the net zero goals, but also a key enabler of business performance and particularly cost improvement um, through the, the existing business, which is a, the, effectively the cash cow of the, the business as it stands today. Um, so a lot of the, the metrics we were looking at there were really around trying to ensure that the dollars that we put forward for 
know, digital initiatives or, or technology initiatives were delivering ultimately to the bottom line. So, that, so the mantra that I was trying to put forward was, you know, if it's not ultimately visible in the financial statements of the company, it ultimately won't drive value. Now, you know, I, I, I define that broadly because it also includes things like um, ESG measure, measures, so environmental, social, and governance types of, of, of improvements. So things like safety improvements are included within that. But the metrics used were really around trying to make sure that the technology investment really drove tangible, real results in in that that suite of metrics across the across the investment, so that you know we would eliminate spend that was not driving those metrics, and we would perhaps put our foot on the gas in areas where we thought we were getting a bigger return for that investment. How challenging was it to define? like uh, the specific process metrics that would help link to those result metrics, right? Um, sometimes I, so, so it sounds like to me, if that was the big driver, then it took a little bit of effort to think about those leading indicators uh, before you kind of got to that bottom line result. Is that right or? Yeah, I think I think so. So I mean, I think from the you know top down viewpoint, you know, the executive of the company quite rightly was in control of strategy and and where generally that money would be spent. It was also from a technical point of view in control of the overall digital roadmap, right? So how would the data structures and strategy around data form how would you want to partner with some key partners? And then how do you layer the applications on top or develop the applications on top? So there was some technical strategy to it as well. And then you had to bring together really that, that technical roadmap with the business roadmap. What is it the businesses want to achieve? What's on their scorecard? Um, you know, and on, on, obviously we're in different times now with the, with the higher oil price environment and the, and the challenges and, and tragedies going on geopolitically but you know back back then you know with oil prices lower of course a lot of the focus was on initiatives that could dramatically change either the efficiency or the cost profile of particular workflows right. so you were trying to say okay well that's the total overall strategic objective what workflows in the business could actually drive that and then for each individual digital initiative a business, a full business case was was put together against that, yeah. and then of course, as I said earlier, we were prioritizing that. Yeah, so interesting, and I, I absolutely i i i appreciate that 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 thought about it's one thing to say, oh, I want to go do some great new digital things and get some applications, but it, as you so aptly stated, uh, thinking a little bit about that data in advance, what that metric was and what that mm. data was. Before you say, here's the technology that's going to, or the digital capability that's going to get me there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's always a balance, right? Because um, there is a tendency in, in, particularly in the largest companies, and I'm not just talking about BP here, I'm talking generally across the, the industry. The largest company technology organizations have, have historically focused on 
the most interesting, perhaps most dramatic um, changes that are, are possible through technology. Um, and that's particularly true with things like you know harder, harder technology, more tangible technologies. But with, with digital innovation, the level of ten- and pace of technology development, particularly outside our industry, is so rapid that the cycle time of improvement that you can get by pulling that technology in and focusing that technology on perhaps nearer term, low-hanging fruit, cash flow type opportunities, you can get a huge amount of value in the near in the near term. And you know, a lot of a lot of the investment in digital is some of the highest return on capital. Uh, activity that a, that a company can do. And so does that include like big data analytics? Is that part of what's driving that? Well, well yes, in part. The, the challenge with things like that is it's a, it's a sort of technology uh, enabler. By having a big data strategy, you're not going to create value. But but having a big strategy, a, a big data strategy that develops very specific or leverages specific applications focused on specific workflows, with specific changes to those workflows and the resources that are allocated to those workflows, drives value. So if you like the big data platform is necessary as part of the overall digital roadmap, but it should be designed in a way such that very easily specific applications and specific workflows can be transformed. Okay. Great. Great. But I was just, I thought it was fascinating that you said, I think if I got this right, that um, some of the highest return on capital is from digital capabilities. Did I understand that? Yeah, so it's. I mean, you know, it's a little bit facetious me me saying that, but if you let's take an example, right? So, um, let's take a physical facility out in the Gulf of Mexico producing oil and gas. Very simple. It's already generating cash flow. The underlying capital, the capital employed for that asset, is already sitting there. Right, so because you've already built the steel and you've got it there. Now, right. if you're able to, for relatively low cost, put a bunch of sensors on that equipment, apply a bit of uh, big data analytics um, and advanced analytics, and you're able to perhaps increase the availability of that equipment a couple of percentage points. The incremental return on that digital spend is absolutely massive. Now, it's, it's facetious okay. because you can't get that benefit unless you put the capital in the platform in the first place. Right. But as an incremental investment, it's very, very high return. I got it. And the, and the fact that you already have the steel and cement or whatever that's sitting in the middle of the ocean yes. means that that's a sunk cost anyway. Exactly. Yeah, and exactly. so what you do to get just a little bit more from that, excellent. I love that. Love that. Um, okay, so I do want to go on. So you you didn't. Uh, I am curious a little bit. So what's your educational background, Colin? Um, I'm a I'm a boring old engineer. I'm a, a chemical engineer by <laughs> by training. I have, I have a master's degree in chemical engineering. Very long time ago, and I, I wish I could remember more of it. But you know, I think 
you know, over the years in my consulting and my, my finance stuff that I've done on Wall Street, um, I think the, the engineering education is more of a discipline and a philosophy to, to look at things in an analytical, quantitative way. And I think that that's a great um, benefit for our industry in that, you know, as the industry looks at leveraging things like digital technology from outside the industry and looks at uh, uh, new challenges of trying to find and create businesses in, in, in different, if a different energy space or evolving, the evolving energy space, that discipline of engineering is very important. And it's, it's always, it's always stood me, stood me well in the, uh, in my various uh, career diversions, as we talked about earlier. And so pretty quickly, um, excuse me, it appears is you kind of went in a slightly more financial, economic, strategic direction as opposed to just engineering operations. Yeah. Yes, I did. Um, I, I mean, I think, you know, I started out doing some some engineering, but very quickly um, started getting involved in, in management consultancy. And, and I did, I, I worked for a company called Arthur D. Little, which I, th- I think is, is, is still going. Um, and I did an, a mix, actually, of traditional, you know, strategy, process design, organizational, you know, traditional management consultancy. But I also did a lot of commercial advisory work as well. So, so a lot of terms negotiations. Um, some of the re- most rewarding, you know, personally rewarding projects I've ever done in my career were was, for example, helping a lot of uh, national oil companies in emerging and developing countries create value by negotiating with the big oil companies for major projects and and, and trying to move those. Move, move those projects down the field while also creating capacity and, 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 and capability within those, those, those national oil companies. And it, it, was, it was great fun to travel all around the world doing those things and, and, and create something in the process. Yeah, so that, that sounds... got me into the commercial side. Right. And then, you know, later got more into the, some of the fine, you know, pure financial side, valuations, M&A, and all the rest of it. So that sounds really interesting to be working on the side of the national oil company as they're negotiating with the, I guess, large um, majors uh, that, that were, that, that sounds really, and that must have been rewarding. It was a personally, personally pleasing experience. I enjoyed it. I'm, I mean, you know, going, going, seeing, seeing a lot of countries around the world, like, like a lot of people in the industry, traveled or travel around, it's a great industry to see the world and educate yourself around, you know, how how different the world is all, all around the, all around our planet, and um, you know, do some do some rewarding work in the process. Right. So it is interesting, as you say, now that your career is kind of focused on some of the energy transition. Um, I, I assume there are some parallels in that now some of the d- developing countries they have access to these large fossil fuel reserves perhaps. And yet much of the world is now has an expectation um, that perhaps they will move away from that into, you know, the more greener options or the more renewable options. That's a, that's a challenge to put it mildly, I would think. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, and again, it's it's you know, there's a there's a there's a fascinating area of the sort of geopolitics of energy. I used to do a lot of this in, in my strategy role at, at Hess, looking at if you like the links between political strategy and social and economic desires to solve the climate issue, which is t- you know typically the agenda of the wealthier nations, um, to put it bluntly, um, perhaps perhaps with the, the Europeans in the lead, uh, but rapidly followed by, by North America as well. Um, and that juxtaposed with the, the, the plain truth that we're going to need hydrocarbons to satisfy the need for low-cost energy to fuel economic growth globally, including uh, emerging economies. Yeah. So you see those emerging con- economies, while they have sympathy uh, with the uh, need to solve climate, uh, the climate uh, issue, um, then they also have a, a need for low-cost energy to fuel their growth. And I think what we're going, we're starting to see, obviously, with the with, with the very challenges around the changing energy flows from the Ukraine crisis. And I think we're going to see more of that where you know, the lowest cost hydrocarbon producers perhaps take market share from some of the, the so particularly the major producers who've, who've decided to take a step back. I think we'll see the major oil companies, as we're starting to already see, dispose of perhaps higher cost Perhaps more polluting uh, producing assets, as we've seen, you know, some transactions already in, in that space. Um, and I think, some, perhaps ironically, some of those those assets will still be produced, but they may be produced by a, a, a segment of the industry who are under less pressure environmentally. And, and actually, the emissions per barrel may may go up, not down, from from those assets. Yep. So there's a lot of things going on around changing energy flows changing cost base, the mix of production, um, the difference between natural gas and, and oil, absolutely fascinating subject. And um, you know, we could fill a whole podcast on the whole right. geopolitics right. of energy, I'm sure. Right. So, yeah, I think that is fascinating. And it's challenging, like I say, to put it mildly. Um, you know, just we certainly all live on one planet, but where we live on this planet causes us to have some personal and community priorities that are not all aligned, uh, depending upon where we are, you know, and, uh, those are some hard truths, I think. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's very true. And I, I think again, you know, to come back to the conversation about engineering and being fact-based, you know, I think the the I do think the industry needs to do a better job of articulating the plain hard truths of the forward energy mix and the forward energy picture. Um, because you know, quite frankly, when you look at the numbers, it's it's a sort of all of the above strategy around the sources of energy that are going to be needed to fuel economic growth in the future. We need oil and gas, and we need investment to to transition. It's not a either or 
yeah. choice. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mix. Yeah. And um, we're going to have to find our way through that as, as an energy industry. Yeah. Um, I'll share a little story here. I, I spend some time with students, kindergarten through senior high and even a little bit at college, trying to encourage them to consider engineering, uh, education and engineering as a career. But one of the exercises I do with, oh, starting about eighth grade up through seniors in high school is I, we pretend that it's the year 2040. So we have some fireworks that go off on the screen and I ask them how old they will be. Uh, and then I ask them to predict what will be our number one highest or greatest largest supplier of energy. And we start, you know, we do crude oil and natural gas and nuclear and coal and, you know, then renewables. And so then I let everyone gets to vote. And then after we see how that the actual classroom voting goes, then I show them the projections. And the reality is regardless of who's, if you're getting, uh, you know, uh, uh, value, you give, if you're getting credible, uh, uh, projections, there's not a lot of difference. Whether or not we're all right or wrong is up for debate, but everyone, you know, kind of sees that about the same. But the students do not like that. They mm. are very upset by 90% of the students think renewable energy will be the number one supplier of energy our renewable sources will be the number one supplier. And they're quite surprised. So like you, I agree with this notion that we need to do a better job, I think, of these tough truths right now. Yeah. And certainly it's 18 years away, and certainly we can perhaps things will change. But uh, the reality is from where we are today, like you say, it's all of the above. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, over the years, I've, I've um, had the good fortune to be invited to, to do a number of guest lectures at, at business schools around uh, the, the, the energy, energy economics and, and how things will play out. And all, you know, we know that the, all the forecasts are a hundred percent wrong. We know, we know, we right. know for certain they're going to be wrong. Right. But we also know that you know the range of of outcomes, right? And I, I totally concur with your your sentiment that there is a difference in the perception of reality between, if you like, the the, the next generations coming through and. Um, you know our, our industry, and I think you know we, we we're going to have to work hard to try and use our knowledge in order to to educate a little bit more around energy economics and and and, yeah. and the mix going forward. While at the same time leveraging that energy of our next generation to perhaps tackle some of the technical challenges of the energy transition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually had a parent who was listening in on one of these conversations one day after the class, just say, you're lying. You are lying. And I was kind of quite surprised. But, um, but what I always tell the classes is if you don't like this answer, these forecasts, it won't be me probably that will solve that. Right. Mm -hmm. It will be you. You know, engineers will play a big role in that. So anyway, excellent. Um, 
So tell me, you had a little bit of a detour when you left the industry, if you will, and you went over to Wall Street. You said you spent a couple of years in New York City. So were there any surprises when you got to Wall Street? Yes. I mean, just a bit of background. I mean, I, I'd always been fascinated, as I'm sure many people are, when they, you know, the, the companies they work for, if they're public companies, that, you know, their, their CEOs and CFOs are on the quarterly conference calls. And then there's a bunch of sell side analysts asking usually fairly stupid questions to the, to the chief executives every quarter. Well, that was me. I was on the other side of those phone calls asking the, the, inane, the inane questions and trying to be interesting on the, on the calls the other side. But the, the sell-side analysts who ask those questions, they're basically the go-betweens between management um, and the investment thesis that they're putting forward um, and the investment community, the so-called buy side, so the people who run the money for our pensions and all of the, the important mutual funds and all, all the important stuff that um, you know we, we're going to be relying on for our retirements, um, so professional money managers. Um and you know the, the sell side has to come up with a very public view of how the companies will perform going forward. So you get to see this juxtaposition in this on the sell side between what a fund manager is driven by and the what a an executive team is driven by. And I I would say the biggest sort of takeaway. From that, from my experience there, having worked in industry in our industry and on the on on the uh, investment side, is time scale. It sounds very simple, but you know, a holding period of twelve to eighteen months for a fund manager is an incredibly long time. Then just think about that. Think about then the challenge for a oil industry management team particularly in the offshore environments, they're making multi-billion dollar investment decisions on 30-year timescales. So you have this challenge where the management team and the board of directors of, of companies are charged with stewarding the capital of that company on behalf of the shareholders to create value, but they're having to manage that on a long-term timescale. But the vast majority of money managers are motivated and measure performance on a shorter term time cycle, right? Which creates a fundamental challenge, right? So what are you trying to do? How do you, how do you manage through that, particularly as a management team, when our industry is inherent, inherently cyclical? We have high oil prices. We have low oil prices. We go from feast to famine. So it, it's just a very challenging industry to be in. And, you know, I was on the street during very challenging times from, from you know, 2016 onwards when the oil prices collapsed. I was covering oil field services. And just to put a bit of scary statistics on it, um, you know, back in the boom time of like 2012, 2013 to 14, 2014 timescale, the energy industry was about 15% of the global market. Um, now it's about 5%. It's come up a bit with the, with the oil price rises, but um, it is a small fraction of what it once was, right? And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's quite, a, quite a stark reality 
Um, now things are changing, of course, with you know the pullback in tech versus versus the rise in energy that we're seeing recently. But it's something to think about as an industry in the in the relative valuation and and how how um, investors think about things. That short term mindset has, has has forced the industry to refocus over the last few years on capital discipline. And manage companies for cash generation in the near term, rather than necessarily manage the business for long-term value growth, so MPV growth in, into the long term, right? Um, which is the old way in the boom times. That was it. Was all about net asset value growth, right? That went away because the investors basically said to management teams, "You guys." keep promising us this value growth, but where's the cash? It's never showing up because you can't keep spending more than your cash flow, even when oil prices are high. Yeah. And so that was- when are you going to get some discipline? So that, that's all changed now. And that's why the last few years, the industry as a whole has pulled back dramatically in the level of capital that we're basically putting, putting into the reserves in the ground, um, which is been part to blame for the rapid rise in oil prices that we're seeing now. Not only have we got the Russia issue, we've got a, a, a US industry that simply hasn't invested for the last several years. Okay. And and there were some signals, let's say, that have come from the investor side to say that perhaps that um, R over P is no longer kind of king, right? The reserve, when you think about metrics for the industry, which very much drove that longer term perspective. Um, so yeah, I think that's, but you're right. Going from 15 to five, as far as the percent of the global market is not as huge. Oh, it's very, very significant. I mean, if you think about the the level of capital flow that implies, it's billions and billions of dollars being sucked out of our industry from several years ago, being reallocated to other industries. Now it's reversing a bit now, of course, mm-hmm. but right. um, you know, it's a massive shift in capital flow. Right. And just as we talked about a little earlier, and you were talking about the fact that you know, even during this energy transition, that's this all of the above, right? And so I assume there's a percentage of the market between 15 and 5, which allows the fossil fuels to continue to play a role in the energy transition that might be appropriate so that people have access to affordable energy. I think there is, and I think obviously with the the very recent and um, tragic events that we've we've seen, um, I think there's a new realization in the investment community that a more um, nuanced approach to energy investment is is needed, and a re reexamination of the perhaps more draconian views that um, that the industry has been under the, over the last few years where investors, particularly European investors, have been pushing the industry um, 
very aggressively to say that you know if you're if you're an oil and gas producer and you're doing nothing about your ESG performance, um, I'm going to pull my investor investment away from that. And you know the the rise of so-called responsible investing is is a very significant trend in certain in certain marketplaces, and and it's growing and and, and very significant. So. But I think with recent events, you know, over the last you know few months, I think things are changing, and I think management teams are going to have to realise that there's a there's a more nuanced opportunity here, where oil and gas c- can come back into favour from an investment point of view, um, but it has to come back, particularly for certain categories of of investor, in a responsible way. So. You know, how are you going to bring the world low-cost oil and gas, but do it in a way that is demonstrably more responsible than perhaps you've done it in the past? And we as investors are going to hold you to that, right? So that's the more nuanced approach. And I, I hope that, that it becomes, becomes the way forward and, and more capital is available to to increase investment levels in the industry um, in that way. And I think that, you know, to bring us back to digital and technology, I think there's a massive role for digital professionals and technology professionals to play a very significant role in helping traditional oil and gas be that solution to produce low-cost energy, but in a substantially more responsible manner than perhaps the industry has been able to in the past. I don't know what all those solutions are, but logically there's a big space for digital and technology to, to get after that. I mean, perhaps one of the most early examples of that is, is methane emissions and being able to, to really get our arms around our operations and understand and you know, at the end of the day, knock out a, a methane emission and keep it in the pipe and sell it is, is good business. Yeah, right. So it's kind of, they're going to be asked to be not only low cost, but low carbon as well. And that is a, that is a different mandate. That is a different metric, one that's been talked about for a long time. But when investors start taking that very seriously, obviously, we, we all listen, <laughs> I think. So if just uh, in kind of wrapping up, I, I appreciate you getting us back to the digital conversation, Colin. And so just to kind of wrap this up, what do you think if you were uh, giving a grade or maybe even some kind of qualitative assessment, how's the oil and gas industry doing on digital transformation? And you've mentioned one there, but are there technologies that they should be pursuing more aggressively? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, actually. Had you asked me that question, it's a great question. If you had asked me that question maybe two years ago, I'd have probably been at a, a B or a, maybe a B plus if I'm feeling generous. Um, I think, uh, um, I think probably we're at an A minus. I, I think the industry is actually getting much better at bringing you know, digital to the forefront. And there's some leading companies out there that are really trying to do that and, and starting to think as digital as a true value creation mechanism rather than uh, an IT cost 
And I think they're going to be the companies that, that really win. Um, I don't think we're there yet. I think there's a little bit of perhaps institutional arrogance still around saying, you know, if we don't invent it, you know, it's not going to be the best solution. I think there's a lot, there's, there's still a, a, perhaps a mindset that says, I don't want to reach out to other industries, namely the tech industry, to be my solution partner. Um, you know, I think from what I've seen, the tech industry just does this stuff faster than oil and gas companies typically work. The, 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 you know, a digital products development cycle is way, way faster or should be way, way faster than the traditional cycle time that we've seen in technology over the industry in, in, you know, in the, over the past decade in traditional technology, oil and gas technologies. Um, therefore, you know, a savvy management team should be reaching out and trying to find ways of increasing development cycle time dramatically and then pulling that cash, put it in financial terms, pulling that cash flow forward. I still think there's a, there's a huge opportunity, but I'm seeing much more proactiveness around the industry around that um, to bring people in from the outside, to pu- build partnerships with, with tech companies um, and try and try and create value. So I, I'm I'm going with a I'm probably going to with, go with an A minus at this point. Oh, on an optimistic note. Yeah, I I'm impressed and and I think that's great. And I I don't disagree with you. I think uh, we're maybe at a point of some kind of discontinuity here where there's a, a shift coming over or something. So excellent. Well, Colin, thank you so much for being with us today. It's very interesting. Um, you certainly have a um, uh, a very informed, I think, perspective. And so thank you so much for sharing that with all of us here on the Digital Doers podcast. Well, thank you for the invitation, Joanna. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Yeah. And so uh, we're going to sign off from this episode of the OGGN Digital Doers podcast. And again, please go to hpe.com. Um, so we can keep bringing you more conversations like this and check out their GreenLake platform, where they uh, just their edge to cloud platform and bringing the cloud to you. Until next time, thank you. Bye-bye. Come back next week for another venture into the real world of the best digital doers in the oil and gas industry, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.